As a Christian, I think um, I would say, I hope you would say as well, that the Christian life is always wonderful. There's no greater calling than the call of God. And God calls us to come to Jesus Christ. And He saves us and places us in vital union with Christ. And there is no greater blessing, the blessing of being in Christ. So then I think it's appropriate to ask the question, so then why do we suffer? Why are we asked to live in a lost and dying world? Why must we wait for the full display of the blessings that we already possess in Jesus Christ? We possess all the blessings in Christ. We are in Him. But we must wait for the full experience of those blessings. And this is somewhat perplexing. Because we know our sovereign God could easily make all things right today. But the biblical answer to the reason why God does not do that is He has said to us, according to His will, according to His wisdom, the just shall live by faith. So we live by believing, by trusting, by depending, by waiting, by submitting, by surrendering to God in Christ. And there's more. We must not only live by faith, but we must live rejoicing. Rejoicing in God, rejoicing in, in Christ, rejoicing by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so here we live in this life, this life that is somewhat perplexing, and now God says to us, though you will experience the blessings in full in the time to come, you are to rejoice now. And you're to live your life with a spirit of joy. And the Bible tells us the way of joy. And joy is not found in our circumstances. And joy is not found in self. Joy through circumstances and joy through self is the way the world lives. And when their circumstances are good, they're joyful. When their circumstances are bad, they lose their joy. And if they cannot find joy in themselves, they don't have joy. This is the way the lost people seek to be joyful. Christian joy is different. It's found in God. It's found in God's truth. It's imposed upon our circumstances in life, not because of our circumstances of life. Joy is the fruit of the Spirit, provided for all Christians in Christ Jesus. And the challenge that we have, and the challenge that is set before us in Scripture, is to walk in the joy that is freely given to all who are in Christ. So no matter what your circumstances may be, we are called to be joyful. And so I, th I think it's important to, to ask the how question. Uh, that's always the difficult question. It's easy for me to stand up here and say, okay, everyone be joyful. And then it would be easy to then say, and let's close in prayer. So we'd be joyful and let's go home and be joyful. But what's... Um, Helpful is for the Bible to tell us how. And that's why I want us to turn to the book of Philippians. And let me encourage you to read um, the books of the Bible. Some of this will be a little difficult. But to, to read like the book of Philippians through in one sitting. It's not very hard with the smaller books. That's why I said to read through the Gospel of John at one sitting would take you know, maybe an hour or so, or maybe more. Um, 
but to, to read through a book. And then let me give you a second recommendation about that. Read through a book in the Bible and do it several days in a row. Read it, and then read it again, and then read it again. Sometimes in the Bible reading charts that we have and reading through the Bible, we, we kind of are in a hurry to keep on reading and move on to the next and, and sometimes catch up to where we were left off or where we should be. Sometimes, um, and I think it's good to read through your Bible, I think that's a great thing as well, but I'm just saying, sometimes it's, it's useful to take a book like Philippians and read it through over and over again. Because what you'll find when you do that is that God, I believe, the Holy Spirit, begins to point things out to you. You start seeing things that um, you don't just see if you read through um, in one reading and check off your list that you've done it for the day and, and move on. And I think that's a, a part of meditating on the Scriptures. It's, it's very helpful, and uh, there's some you know, books that have been great blessing, like the, uh, you know, I just, Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians. They're all great, and Timothy and Titus and all the rest of them are great too. But there's just some wonderful books just to, to sort of immerse yourself in the book for a period of time. And the reason why I say that is because you come to chapter 4 and it says um, the passage we're looking at, which is a familiar passage of Scripture, as Dave said this morning, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. That's really a, a summary statement of this entire book. And it's going to give you some hints about rejoicing in this passage, but the key to all of this is if you look at the at the whole of the book, because you'll find references to joy and rejoicing throughout the book. And they just stand out at you. They begin to... And the, and the primary reason why they stand out is this is a prison epistle. And so Paul is in prison. Now, I'm not sure about you, but I think one of the last few places that I would like to be is in prison. I had opportunity to visit someone in in the Oregon State Penitentiary one time, and it's, it's an amazing experience, uh, to say the least, and it's, you know, how you, you sort of hear these loud doors and they shut behind you, you hear this, this real strong, strong door sound. It's not like a little clinking door, it's this crunching sound of doors behind you, and with each crunching door behind you, you you sort of feel like I'm losing my freedom in here. It's like it's, these doors are closing behind. And probably the last place I would think about rejoicing and being joyful is in prison. But that's why this epistle is, one of the reasons why this epistle is so interesting from a human perspective, from Paul's perspective, is um, he's writing from a place where there's no joy in prison. There's no joy in confinement. You know, Paul would have rather been out able to live his own life. And he would rather have been out and engaging in ministry. But he's confined. And he is in prison. And there's no joy. And as you read this passage, uh, you're never going to see the Apostle Paul saying things like, I'm joyful because I'm just a joyful kind of person. I'm really upbeat in these circumstances, though difficult. They don't really overwhelm me because I'm just really the happy kind of guy that I am. He doesn't look for joy in himself. 
And you'll, you'll see that when you look through this. And let me, I'm going to give you a quick run through the whole of this, this book. But in, verses, in chapter 1, verses, and I hope I'll say this right, but in chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, he talks about the joy in, in other Christians. Look at verse 4. Well, in verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. When he thinks about the Philippian church and the Christians and their coming to Christ and standing firm in, in the gospel of Christ, it brings joy to him in a joy in a place where no joy should be found. But he prays with joy and he prays about other Christians. In verses twelve through twenty six, he has joy in the going forth of the gospel. And look at verse eighteen. He talks about some preaching joy to cause him pain, some preaching joy because of their love for the truth. He says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and will rejoice. So now he's rejoicing that his imprisonment has caused the gospel message to be heard in prison and, been, and to be heard through others. Some to cause him harm, some to cause him joy. But he's rejoicing in the going forth of, of the gospel. And then if you look at verses 29 and, and, and 30, um, he talks about also knowing that where he is is in the will of God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in his name's sake, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here in me. And it is, it is, it is granted... He's recognizing that it has, it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer. So he recognizes the, the, the will of God in, in, his, his, in his position, in his, in his situation. Then in chapter 2, he expresses joy in the unity Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if there's any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. And this, this joy is, is not only joy in unity, but further joy in, in seeing the example of Jesus Christ and how Jesus Christ was humbled in the incarnation and humbled in the crucifixion, and God highly exalted him. And, and God's ways are ways uh, that are past finding out. It's very difficult, even with Christ, to see how God would take Christ and humble him so, and for Christ to humble himself so, in order to accomplish greater purposes. And, and he says, I, I, I just rejoice... Um, in the unity that we have and, and in the example of the Lord Jesus Christ and all the sufferings and, that, and the difficulties and the humility uh, that he uh, exhibited in his, in his life upon the earth, his life and ministry upon the earth.
And then in verses 17 and 18, he talks about um, the joy of being of suffering. Yes, and if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For this same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. So he looks at sufferings and, and overwhelming of the, the overwhelming part of the sufferings is, is joy. That's something that the world does not understand, the joy of suffering. Um, and it's not just the joy after the suffering when you see, oh, that joy was helpful to me. It's the joy in suffering, in being poured out as, as a drink offering. It's, it's a sacrifice to God. So he looks at this and he says, uh, this also is in verses 12 through 18, he talks about this joy of faithful suffering. In verses 28 through 30, wait, I mean, 19 through 30, rather, I'm just, I'm giving two sets of references to you. In chapter 2, verses 19 through 30, he talks about this joy of, in Christian fellowship. Verses 28, therefore, he talks about Epaphroditus. Therefore, I sent him the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. This, this rejoicing in, in, in the fellowship that Christians have one with another, the encouragement that Epaphroditus would be to the Philippian Christians and they to him. And then he comes in chapter 3. And he says, My brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but is for you is safe. And he talks about then the dangers that are before them. But, but the joy that they are to have in Christ in, in, in living for Him in, in the face of, of difficulties. And this, this joy that he has in Christ is, is a joy that is focused on the salvation that he has in Christ, not by works that he has done, and uh, not by being a, a, a great person, but by seeing the, the greatness of God. And he looks back at his salvation, and he gives his testimony in this passage, speaking of counting all things lost for the sake of gaining Christ. And, and that, that fills him with joy. And then lastly, he ends in this chapter 3 with the, in chapters, in verses 17 through 21, with, with really rejoicing in the hope of the calling of Jesus Christ and the coming of Jesus Christ. And he said, our citizenship is in heaven. And where we're headed is, is to be with the Lord, forever with the Lord. And we will rejoice in Him. So you, you know, when you come to this last part, you, you realize that Paul has been joyful all along in this passage. And in his epistle, he's, he's talking about the joy and rejoicing. This is not the Apostle Paul drumming up joy in a place of darkness or a time of darkness in his life. This is the Apostle Paul speaking about the joy of the Lord, the joy that he has found, and the joy and rejoicing that he has found that the, the darkness of the prison and the sadness of prison life could not snuff out the joy of the Lord that he feels. And he, and he says it in, in, in so many different ways. Joy in the gospel. Joy in, 
in the fellowship of the saints. Joy in the love that we have for one another. Joy in rejoicing in, in, in our salvation. Joy in rejoicing in the coming of the Lord. And it's almost when you, you look at, at the Apostle Paul, and he talks about joy. He says the, the way you get joy is by pointing in two directions. Pointing to the past, and you see your salvation. And, and you see the, the, the people who have been saved, and, and the joy and rejoicing and fellowship that he had. He doesn't have that fellowship in prison. He had that with them, and he rejoices in that. And when he prays, it brings back all that joy. And he prays for them. And when he talks about his own salvation and the way in which he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and yet even so with all of his credentials, he counts that bit rubbish and for the sake of knowing Christ. And, and, and that whole then brings him to the gospel and all that he's thinking of, of all those things in the past that caused him joy. And then he thinks about the coming of the Lord. And he thinks that what God has begun in him, he will complete. And he thinks this is all going to be brought to the coming of Christ and, and the joy and rejoicing that we'll have in His presence. For, so looking to the past and looking to the future and looking to the reasons for joy and rejoicing in those things brings that joy and rejoicing of the future and the past into His present. And, and that's an Im- important to see in, in the Apostle Paul and also to see in us. Because when you go through difficult times in your life and challenges in your life, when you look at the challenges, the challenges themselves are not joyful. They are difficult. What is, is joyful is what you have that caused those challenges and those problems and those difficulties and those persecutions and those afflictions and those trials to be overwhelmed by the grace and glory of God. And when you look to the past and you look to the future, there's a whole other factor on this. And that is what God himself gives you that joy. Joy is always that which comes from God. Everything that we have that is to our benefit and to our, uh, the, the living of the Christian life comes from God. So you're looking to the future, you're looking to the past, and you're looking for the God of the present to minister in our own hearts in giving us joy in light of all the things that we can look at, both past and future. So it's in that light that he comes to chapter 4. And when he comes to chapter 4, he talks about a church problem. And I think it's significant that this is a little church problem. You know, sometimes I, you know, I wonder about Yodia and Syntyche, and I think, you know, they may be saying, "Did he have to really mention our names here?" I just wish he could have said something without <laughs> mentioning our names. It's just like, uh, but this, you look at this, and it's 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 calling. Two people in the church to be of the same mind. It's it's recognizing the church is not a problem-free place. It's it's not a place where you don't still have struggles. So here's he's speaking, and in all of his joy and all of his rejoicing and all his there's a problem. 
See, the joy and rejoicing doesn't make the problems go away. It, it's what comes overwhelming in the presence of those problems. But he says, you have a problem, you've got to deal with this. Therefore, my beloved and long for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Stand fast in the Lord. And when you find those who are not standing fast, you encourage them. I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of the fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. These are the struggles of Christians. Help them. So he's, he's recognizing, he, he doesn't say in this passage, you come to the concluding work of this, he says, I'm thankful that just as I am joyful, you're joyful because you're, you're in one happy situation. But he recognizes, even where you are, there's problems. Even where you are, there's difficulties. And you can look at your own life and say, well, I'm not struggling like other people are struggling. You look at people who have big problems. We can all look at people who have more problems than we have. But that's not a reason for joy. So he says, you've got a little problem here. And urge these women to be of the same mind and minister to the others whose names are written in the book of life as well. And then he says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. You'll notice when you go back and read the epistle that the, the rejoicing that he has is all the Lord related. It's all related to the Lord. He doesn't rejoice and say, you're not going to believe this, but in this prison where I am, there happens to be a gourmet cook. You, could you believe that? And the meals here are just outstanding. And it makes me so happy because I've been in prison, other prisons and the, and the food is really bad. They don't even serve food. It's up to people to bring food. But here we have this gourmet cook. I mean, it's, just, it's the kind of place you'd want to come and live. But there's none of that. He doesn't rejoice in his prison. He doesn't rejoice in the, in the bonds and the bars and and all the things that are used to confine him. He doesn't rejoice in the suffering. He doesn't rejoice in the, in the mistreatment that he's receiving. The things that he rejoices in are all God-related. They're all related to Christ. So he says, I find my joy in Christians. I find my joy in the gospel. I find my joy in the will of God. I find my joy in the example of Jesus Christ and the unity that we have and in faithful suffering and in joy in Christian fellowship and and the joy of salvation in Jesus Christ, and the joy of Christ coming again. It's all Christ-related. So it's, you know, I've often said we, we don't take sad and make sad glad. Uh, you know, you take a, a sad face and turn it upside down, and it becomes a happy face. And, you know, whenever I look at the sufferings that people are going through, I never look at those sufferings and say, as Christians, what you do is you redefine sufferings to be something positive rather than negative. I say, whenever I go through sufferings, I look at sufferings and they're negative. I look at suffering. They're negative. The problems of life, they are negative. The difficulties of life, they are negative. And I never say, oh, that's wonderful. I'm so happy that we have these terrible problems. I just say, we're not going to have those problems in the new heavens and new earth. Those things are not going to be there. They're not going to be things that we say, oh, these are wonderful things that we can have now. We, they're not going to be wonderful things that you're going to have there because they're not going to be there. We're not going to have those things. The Lord's going to drive all of those things away. Very difficult to know what life's going to be like in the new heavens and new earth because I don't know anything like that. So I never take the sufferings of life and try to put a happy face upon them. 
The sufferings of life are sufferings. That's why they call them sufferings. That's why they call them afflictions. That's why they call them a heavy burden that presses down upon you. And the circumstances of life can be great, a great discouragement. But that's where you see the joy of the Lord and the rejoicing that is to be found in Jesus Christ. And that's why he says, he doesn't say in this passage, I urge you to rejoice in your circumstances always. Rejoice in whatever is happening to you. But he says rejoice in the Lord. And you can look to your salvation and you can look to your past and say, you know, this is how God saved me. I was lost, blind, and dead. And God, by the Holy Spirit, worked in my heart. And I, I can't even say, like the Apostle Paul said, that he was, he was really mating, making himself most presentable to God. I mean, he was of Jewish heritage. He was doing all the right things. He thought all the right things in, in following the leaders in Judaism, and he was really out in front as far as leading in all of those things. And you'd look at him and say, well, if anybody should be saved, it would be the Apostle Paul. He's a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He's outstanding. I'm sure he was a, a great scholar, a, a, a great student. I think he was at the head of the class, and they were looking at him, and this is like, what, what a great person. He will be a leader someday in, in our nation. And instead, the Apostle Paul said, oh, that's rubbish. For the sake of knowing Christ. And then he goes on to say, for the sake of going and continuing to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings and to, to walk in the knowledge of him. It's all Christ. So he looks at his salvation and he looks at the coming of the Lord. He says, it's Christ who's coming. And when he comes, there will be glory. It's all Christ. And he's also rejoicing in the Lord. He doesn't say rejoice in Jesus. He doesn't say rejoice in Christ. He says rejoice in the Master. Lord, who is my master. So when you're rejoicing in the master, you're rejoicing in the Lord, all the blessings he's giving, but also recognizing that he is the master of my life. So I'm here because that's where he wants me to be. So rejoicing in the Lord is rejoicing in, in, in the names of God are always significant. They're always important. And here it's important as well. Rejoice in, doesn't say rejoice in Jesus, rejoice in Christ, rejoice in the Savior. All those are true. He says, rejoice in the, in the Lord, in the, in the Master, always. This is a command. And the command itself would be sufficient to say always. Because rejoice is given, it means I want you to continually be doing this. Continue to be characterized by joy. And so I'd say, how do you do this? Well, you do this by recognizing our union with Jesus Christ. You recognize that He's the Master He's not only Christ is in you and you are in Christ, but He is the Master and He's leading your life. And you are where He has you to be and He's coming again for you. And just remember, your salvation as you remember it is the beginning. And your glorification is the ending. And the God of the beginning is the God of the ending. The God who begins a good work is the God who completes that work. He starts and finishes. Always with all of his people. So there's great reason to rejoice in this Lord, this master, who's accomplishing his purpose. So he gives this command, and then he tells them about their attitude. Verse 5, let your gentleness, let your 
Forbearing spirit, I think it says in the New American Standard, let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. And here this forbearing spirit is a humble spirit, a a steadfast spirit, a steady spirit, a faithful spirit. All those characteristics are descriptive of this forbearing. It even is sort of be reasonable in judgment. That's also included in this this thing, in this attitude that are, and even the translation in the New King James says, uh, "Let your gentleness be known to all men." There's, it's a, it's a word that's a little hard to define, but it's this, it's it's this word of humble, steady faithfulness. Humble, steady faithfulness. Let that be seen. And let all men observe that humble, steady faithfulness. So you're to rejoice and to be humble, joyful, and steady and faithful. Knowing that the Lord is near. Now that the Lord is near means one of two things. I think it probably means a little bit of both. He's talking about rejoicing and how you have the attitude of rejoicing. But this is also helpful in knowing that the Lord is near. And what that means is that here the Apostle Paul is in prison. And he knows that when he's in prison, that Christ is imprisoned with him. It's nearness in space. It's also nearness in time because it can refer to the second coming of Christ, which he's already talked about. The Lord is near. His coming is near. We're always to live in the context of the nearness of the coming of the Lord. Whether you're a first century Christian or a 20th century Christian, you are to live in the nearness of the Lord. But the nearness of the Lord is is the nearness of the Good Shepherd, the nearness of the God who cares for you. And there's never a circumstance where the nearness of the Lord is not appropriate in terms of of His presence with you. His presence with you. I think it's always important as you look at the text of Scripture to know that we live the Christian life not for Christ. We live the Christian life in Christ. With Christ. Yes, for Him. But first, it's in Him. And we are to know Him. And uh, I was reading a book recently that talked about a father speaking of his son. And uh, he says, as my son has uh, gotten older, uh, we have drawn closer to each other. Well, he may have spent his entire life in the same place with his son. He's not talking about drawing closer in proximity to one another. But what he's talking about is drawing closer in intimate fellowship with one another. Because he's always been, the son was always close. There's a very real sense in which that's what happens to us in the Christian life. It should happen to us. The Lord, we are always in him and he is always in us. But as we continue to grow, what happens is we grow closer in our fellowship with Him. In in the sense of His presence with us. 
we can live the Christian life as if we're saying, well, this is what Christians do, so I'm going to live my life. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and Christians obey God. So he gives me commands, and I obey him. And so I walk in the commands, and I'm doing all the things that I should be doing, and I'm a faithful Christian. And I think it's possible to live the Christian life that way and to be a sincere and godly Christian. But God's purpose in the Christian life is for us to enter into not just being in Christ, but drawing near to him in fellowship with him. This, this nearness to the Lord. And what the Apostle Paul found when he went to prison was that his fellowship with the Lord was even nearer and dearer to him. That's what makes the sufferings of life a place where you can rejoice. Is when you, you draw near to God and He will draw near to you. And this drawing near is you can't get any closer to God. I mean, you're already in Him, and He is in you. That is a perfect union. But in the context of that perfect union, you can draw near to God, and He draws near to you. That's talking about the enjoyment of the fellowship with God. And that's what you can find in the weirdest places, like a Roman prison. And Paul is there, and I, I'm just telling you, whatever your thoughts of prison and a Roman prison would be worse. It just, it's, it's just, you know, a prison today, you, you, it's, it's not good today. I'd never want to be in prison, but I'm just saying it's not anything like prison in the first century where I'm not, like I said earlier, I'm not even sure they cook food for these prisoners. They put them in prison and, and their friends and relatives had to bring food. I don't think they had anybody hired on to cook food. And if they did, it wouldn't, it probably wouldn't be much, it wouldn't be edible. It's just, and the circumstances, there was no, you know, civil rights in prison and all the rest of that stuff. It's like, you know, whatever they wanted to do to you, they could do to you because you're in prison. You don't have any rights at all. You're nothing. And it's, it's the worst of circumstances. Yet Paul is in the worst of circumstances and he finds that in those worst of circumstances he's drawing near to God. And that's why he says this statement. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. Then he also speaks in the context of, of the outlet that the Lord has given to us. Because though the Lord is near, there are times of worry. There are times of anxiety. You know, when you put difficulty in front of us, we look at the difficulties and we worry about them. The Bible said don't worry, but there's a tendency to worry, and worry is sin. Because the Bible says don't worry, so if we're not supposed to worry, then to worry is sin. But there's a tendency to look ahead and to look at the presence of circumstances and look at this and just be overwhelmed. And uh, I told you before, I have a friend who talks about, every once in a while I have this friend who will call me up on the phone and, and say that uh, she's, she's a, uh, I went to high school with her and um, every once in a while she calls and talks to me about some problem or some difficulty and um, but she, um, she oftentimes will say, my stress bucket is full. My stress bucket is full. And uh, I say to her, well, you should get rid of your stress bucket. 
don't, don't be putting it in a bucket someplace. Just get rid of that bucket. I don't know why you're carrying a stress bucket around with you, but uh, I, I definitely would get rid of that. But the Lord doesn't say get a bucket and put all your stress in a bucket. He says take your worries and concerns. And according to uh, 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7, he says, casting all your care upon me, casting all your anxiety to me. And the Lord says, I know when you're in difficult circumstances that those circumstances, when you look at the circumstances, can be overwhelming. Throw, throw that to me. Just, just keep tossing that worry to the Lord because He cares for you. He says, for be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. Come, He says, come before me. In, in Peter, He says, toss your cares. Here He says, pray your cares. And pray them to God. Same thing. Because you're giving them to God. And you say, Lord, I'm in here in prison. I'm, I'm, worried, I'm worried about being here in prison. I'm worried about what the other prisoners will do to me. I'm worried about what the guards will do to me. I'm, I'm worried about being here in prison. I'm at the mercy of sinful men. I'm at the mercy of this place. God help me. So he knows that he can say, well, you can think about the past, you can think about the future, you can think about Christ, you can rejoice always in every circumstance, but then these worries are going to creep in. It's a part of, it's a part of the affliction of life. The afflictions creep in and they start creeping in the inside. You start worrying or being fretful or however you are being troubled, however you want to describe it. He says, by everything, everything, whatever's troubling you, in everything, by prayer, the, the, the first is the general kinds of prayer. The second is the earnest kinds of prayer. Supplication is, is, is more aggressive with the Lord. And one is bringing it before the Lord in the prayer, and the other would be begging the Lord in prayer or, or petitioning with, with, in a stronger sense. But bring those things to me. And bring them with thanksgiving. Again, it's kind of troubling. You say, well, how do you be, if you're worried about something, how do you be thankful? Well, what you're thankful for is the Lord's mercies in the past. He's always been faithful. The God who's always been faithful will be faithful. You can be thankful for His faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. The God can only be faithful. So you're calling Him to be what He always is. So you rejoice in who He is and what He's done for you. And you're thinking of the difficulties and trials of life. And you're, you're coming before Him and saying, I'm bringing these to you, but I'm so thankful that when I bring these to you, that you hear me. I'm so thankful that you are a God who is faithful. I'm so thankful that you've promised never, no never to leave me and no never to, no never to drop me and no never to, to, to let me go in the midst of my affliction. You never walk away. I'm thankful that you're always here. I'm thankful when it seems like I'm alone that I'm never alone. There's a lot of reasons to be thankful as a Christian because we're ne we never are alone. Christ is with us. So he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then there's a promise. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, which surpasses the mind, the peace of God which surpasses the mind will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That's, that's sort of interesting, the way in which it's stated, because it sort of sounds like, my mind is going, worry, worry, worry. And God says, well, what is surpassing to the mind? Every, this should cause me to worry. And yet, as my mind is saying, worry, 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 my heart is saying, peace. 
Because that's what it says. And the peace of God, which surpasses the mind, surpasses the way we would understand, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Nice. And that's the provision of God. Remember I said that all the blessings you ever receive, you shall receive from Christ. And all the blessings you ever receive, you shall receive from God. God gives us the blessings through Christ. The peace of God. Which surpasses all understanding. Will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That's, that's the divine protection. So you can rejoice always because always He's the God of peace. And always He gives us peace. In the midst of our afflictions, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our troubles, in the midst of our anxieties, in the midst of our concerns, we have the God of peace. And does it make sense that we can be in the worst of circumstances and be at peace? No, that doesn't make sense. But it's what God does. And what we are as Christians is never going to make sense to the world because it is God's transforming grace. It's God's transforming power in us. It's the difference that Christ makes in us. So that's how the Apostle Paul was in prison. And when you get to heaven, it'll be interesting to talk to the Apostle Paul and ask him about the difficult circumstances of his imprisonment. And I'll tell you, when he tells of the difficult circumstances, it's going to sound different than this. Because he's going to write about the difficulties of prison, the things that he observed in prison, and the things that happened to him in prison, and the things and the difficulties and the, and the sufferings that he encountered and all the rest. It, it may be a bit of a dark story when he tells the whole of that, if we tell those kinds of things in heaven or in the new heavens and new earth. I don't know. But it would be a bit of a dark story. It will sound different than this, but you see, this is how Paul lived in prison. That's why this... this passage in this call to, to rejoice in the Lord is so contrary to human expectation of, of something that someone would write. And it's as if he's writing to people who are not in prison to encourage them to be rejoicing because he's found that joy. In, he's found the joy in rejoicing in, in a place where there should be no joy. But Christ is there with him. So that's the way we are to live the Christian life. We are to live the Christian life in dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ with all the joy and rejoicing that, that He gives and all the blessings that He provides. So we're thankful that when God gives a command, He gives the grace to be obedient to that command and He gives the peace to, to enable us to be what He commands us to be. So this is not calling us upon us to engage in great human endeavor. It is calling us to depend greatly upon the Lord. And the Lord himself will be faithful. And we are never, they'll never find a time in your life when the Lord was ever unfaithful to you, so draw near to him. And he will draw near to you. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the blessings that you give. We're thankful for Christ. We're thankful for our salvation. We're thankful that what you begin in our salvation, you will bring to completion. You will sanctify us and make us holy, and you will glorify us in the glory of Christ. You have defeated sin, and you have defeated death, and though we walk in the presence of sin and death in this life, we shall one day be delivered completely. We're so thankful for all the blessings that you give. And we rejoice in Christ our Savior. 
We rejoice in the fellowship that we have. We rejoice, rejoice in the encouragement that we have from one another. We rejoice in all the blessings and the way that you give blessings to us. We're thankful for the Apostle Paul and for his ministry. We're thankful that in the, in the prison, you gave him peace. In the prison, you gave him joy. We're thankful for your loyal and faithful love that never failed the Apostle Paul in prison and never will fail us either. So we rejoice in Christ. And we rejoice in all that he's accomplished in the past and all that he will complete in the future. And we're thankful that you give us peace in the present that we may rejoice in him. So bring our hearts to the joy that only you can give us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.